Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Hey, so uh, welcome to the Stem Cells at Lunch podcast. I'm Josh and I'm here with uh, Professor Yukiko Yamashita, who is a professor at the Whitehead Institute at MIT. Hi, yeah. nice to be here. It's great to have you and you just did a, an excellent talk. Could you just uh, introduce so we're all familiar, uh, what kind of work you do in your lab and what, what your main questions are? Yes, yeah, so my lab is really interested in the various aspects of the germ cell biology because we believe, you know, the germ cell is a really foundation for all of our life as well as evolution and everything. You know, the, my lab really don't necessarily have a real theme other than, you know, that it's surrounding the, you know, the germ cells because we really love to be led by data and, you know, the, we love to be surprised by the data. So sometimes we don't know what question we are asking, but, you know, the, with the persistence and then really thinking about what we have in front of us, typically that guide us to the next discovery. Could you give us a, a few sentences summary about that as well? Yes. So for this work, we are following up on the mechanism or, you know, the possible instance of non-random sister chromatid segregation. And we had no idea for what purpose that might be happening or if that's happening at all. And from there, we found that uh, it's actually chromosome specific. And then, you know, the, we narrowed down that the ribosome or DNA repeats is really critical for mediating this non-random sister chromatid segregation. From there, we realized that this non-random segregation is really for the sake of maintaining the ribosomal DNA copy number through or across the generation. Uh, so that's uh, you know that's uh, also a surprise, and we realized non-random segregation is a method to increase ribosomal DNA copy number when you you know, lose them in a germline. So that's how the germline's immortality uh, has been supported. Um, so as you said, the cell type you're focusing on is the, the germ cells inside the testis. Mm -hmm. Have you looked at this system and whether, it, whether it's occurring in other stem cells in other tissues? No, we haven't. I think that's something certainly we want to really go. And, you know, the, I have been really, you know, the benefited by working with Drosophila system because um, that allows so much, you know, the experimental precision and etc. But now that, you know, that our discovery is really begging the question that this is really universal mechanism. So at least, you know, to some extent, we have to, you know, confirm or test this, you know, the discovery's universality to see if this is actually true in the mammalian system or any other stem cell system. Because you were looking in the specific cell type, mm -hmm. you've established this as a possible mechanism for the cellular senescence. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so. And talking about that, one interesting observation is that if you look at the laboratory mouse strain, they have a very, very long telomeres. That means actually still those, you know, the mouse cell lines undergo senescence after certain, you know, the divisions. But when you look at senescent cells, they still have more than enough, um, you know, the telomere lengths. So what explains their senescence? Nobody knew. And now I have to wonder, that could be probably, you know, ribosomal DNA. All right, that's very interesting. So it's not the telomeres that are the limiting yeah. factor. Yeah. 
Right. And so do you think it a thing that's underlying somatic aging? And You know, the, uh, the very similar to telomere, you know, the ribosome or DNA, probably both, um, you need to maintain them for any cells to live long. And of course, you know, the need of live long um, is extreme for the germ cells. But of course, you know, the long living somatic stem cell uh, um, would have very similar requirement. So uh, in, my, in my own work, I'm very interested in the niche of stem cells. Mm -hmm. You investigated this protein, Indra, mm -hmm. that is responsible for the asymmetric uh, sister chromatids. Is the, does the niche influence the Indra expression? That's a really good point. We don't know. We do see the Indra expression, uh, you know, the slightly extending from the stem cell. So, you know, the some differentiating spermatogonia also express indra. But what we don't know yet is which cell type might respond to, you know, ribosomal DNA copy number loss or deduction. That could be probably regulating indra, but is that actually the stem cell specific or some other cells also respond equally? So that's a really interesting point and you know, how much of the influence from the niche. Um, and I saw that uh, recently you had a comment in um, Developmental Cell, mm -hmm. which was saying that stem cell niche interactions go both ways. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's possible to have a stem cell niche in isolation? So is it possible to have a stem cell niche that doesn't have a stem cell in it? Oh, I th I'm pretty sure, you know, the stem cell niche are going to change its characteristics in the absence of stem cells. I think their response must be to support the stem cell, meaning in the absence of stem cells, niche probably realize they are not doing a good job maintaining stem cell. So I think, you know, there must be some sort of upregulation on the, on the niche side to to recruit more stem cell, to support more stem cell, and so on. And then, you know, there's some, you know, the related observation has been made, you know, in the absence of stem cell, indeed, you know, the cells start proliferating, for example. So both in my own work, and I, I know a lot of other groups are starting to look at this, we're trying to kind of distill the niche down to its key factors mm -hmm. in order to be able to enhance them. So to, to make artificial niches. What, what do you think of this approach? I think that's actually quite a possible, you know, I mean, where you're trying to generate, for example, you know, in a sense, artificial niche, right? That is quite a possible. Of course, you know, in the absence of stem cells, their response or their behavior might not be the same. But for the purpose of generating artificial niche, of course, you know, you're going to supply the stem cell as well. So at some point, they're going to engage in, a, you know, the dual direction interaction. So artificial niche start functioning as actual real niche. My next question is, um, have you tried with the Indra and the asymmetry? You Well, the asymmetry of the ribosomal DNA. Yeah. You're saying it's quite high linked to the, um, the copy number. Yeah. So this is actually, you know, we are still trying to understand. Indra, if you remember, you know, the ribosomal DNA copy number is normally equal between stem cell and the non-stem cell, you know, the, in that dividing stem cell, right? And then upon induction of the RDNA copy number recovery, stem cells start getting more ribosomal DNA, right? In, that, in the face of that observation, what we see with Indra is shocking. So normally, in the, during the normal stem cell division, meaning when they don't feel the need of recovering ribosomal DNA copy number, Indra, slightly more Indra goes to the stem cell side. 
but that's very, and it's right, but very consistent, 1.2 or 1.3 times. And then, again, I might not believe such a small number on its own. However, upon induction of the copy number recovery, this indoor amount becomes completely equal. So the behavior of the indoor asymmetry is completely opposite of actual ribosomal DNA copy number between stem cell and non-stem cell. So I don't know what it means yet. That's something, you know, we are trying to really follow up. That's very interesting. You, you showed that the copy number, if it gets too low, is it lethal? Yep. What happens if it goes the other way? Have you investigated what happens? Yep. Yeah. So, I, uh, so the impact of having too many copy number or possibility of it has been investigated and modeled uh, by, you know, the Andy Cracker or Cornell. So based on their work, it really looks like, you know, the copy number behaves as if there is, you know, the seeding of the copy number. And then, you know, the modeling seems to be consistent with the idea that when you have too many copy number, that itself makes the locus very unstable because there's too many targets, too many opportunities to undergo recombination to reduce the copy number. So there seems to be some sort of seeding any cells can reach. So in case of a fly, it's, it appears to be like 450 copies. But that's if there's any active mechanism to limit the copy number, that's not known. So these um, repetitive regions of DNA, mm-hmm. they're often known as junk DNA. Is it surprising how much of the genome is considered junk DNA. <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, absolutely. So with that said, that's a precise reason that we don't believe though they are entire junk. You know, there might be some sort of, you know, the buffering amount. Maybe you could slim down, you know, to trim down the junk to some extent, but we, I don't believe that you can go to zero. And indeed, you know, some of the junk DNA, for example, satellite DNA, you know, we have shown that it seems to have a function. So we'll see any other junk DNA might have as um, appreciated, um, you know, functions in the future. Because yeah. it, it, it's my impression that calling it junk DNA, I don't mm-hmm. know how long ago it was named, but calling it junk DNA, just not knowing what function it has seems quite bold. Exactly. Yep. Um, so do you think there is any truly junk DNA? Um, that's a difficult idea to test, right? <laughs> um, I don't know. There could be, you know, the if potentially junk DNA, if they do not pose any negative impact on their survival or, you know, their reproduction, uh, it's quite possible they can just stay there, you know, hang in there. But when the amount exceeds a certain amount and then that, you know, above a certain level, I don't think, you know, there can be the truly junk DNA. I mean, otherwise, I think they would be eliminated, you know, if they pose any the disadvantage for the survival. And because it, it's important, like within science for, you know, people who aren't experts in in the field to to also be involved. So in terms of the public, in terms of funding, do you think it being called junk DNA is holding it back in a sense? I, I think so. However, that's at least at this point, it's sort of inevitable because nobody knows, you know, if it has a real function. I mean, for many of the junk DNA. With that said, the, by discovering the function of the junk and then if that accumulates more and more those evidence, then 
uh, people start appreciating any other kind of junk DNA might be functional. So I think people become more receptive. So with that said, for example, non-coding RNA has been considered a junk or they didn't think, you know, it's coding anything and then that's junk. But now we appreciate that has a function, right? So those, you know, the past discoveries, I, I believe, is making, you know, other junk DNA to be appreciated more easily. Yeah. So the idea of junk DNA on the whole is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I, I think so. Whether it disappears or just kind of exactly. gets raised. So does that, you know, the real junk DNA goes to zero or, you know, the you know, how much it's going to reduce, of course, we don't know. But um, that's a, you know, interesting future perspective. Um, yeah. So uh, moving on a little bit, I wanted to ask some kind of just general questions mm -hmm. about the science environment. Mm -hmm. I'm a student myself, and I'd like to ask you what skills you think are most important for a PhD student to learn? That's a difficult question. I think, you know, the, to be a scientist, you would be a learner for the rest of your life. <laughs> so I don't say I know what I'm doing. You know, I can't tell how much I learned, but I always feel what I need to learn. In a sense, you know, that as a scientist, you're the, you know, the trajectory of your learning, you know, you are always in a sense nearsighted because you don't appreciate what you don't know until you get close to it. So that always, you know, it's really like driving in a fog, you know, that you're, you're your sight is only, you know, the hundred feet away and then that's it. So that means only after you learn something, you realize what else you need to learn. So I think in a sense, getting used to it is very important things. Um, otherwise, you know, many other things, you know, we, if we go into science with the anticipation or expectation of there's a, you know, the finite amount of something to be learned. And once you're done, uh, you, you'll be done. If you go into science with that mentality, uh, you will be frustrated because you realize you haven't learned much after five years. And then I think we all have to get used to it. Well, that's kind of, you know, the vague abstract way of saying it. But I mean, I think that mentality is critically important. But once you have that, you know, the mentality, of course, you know, there's a, lots of small things you could learn as a PhD student, for example, you know, learning persistence or how to be motivated or to be excited about your science and so on. Yeah, because it's the giving experiments and ideas a go. Mm -hmm and not necessarily being a, an expert who's done it many times. Right. That's, that's a lot of the fun yep. of, of actually doing sciences. Uh, I think that's really what, you know, that you brought up one interesting point because, you know, the, we study and then learn and then read to become an expert of something. But once you feel you are expert on something to some extent, and there will be a strong temptation to stay in the field where you feel you are expert because you don't want to feel uncomfortable again, you know, going into the field that you don't know. And in my life, in my past, the one thing I really benefited was to become comfortable not to be an expert. That means, you know, the um, when, you know, if you do science, you always bump into something new. And there's many, many branching points when you feel, okay, so this makes me uncomfortable because I don't know about this. And it's so easy to make a decision not to go there because you are already expert in certain field. Why don't I stay in this comfortable backyard? And I strongly discourage to do so. Just go into the new field that by data. In that way, you keep growing. 
And then that's going to really expand your horizon. So that's one thing I learned to feel okay to be uncomfortable. I, I think, I mean, that, that's given me definitely a lot to think about. So I feel that positive finishing. So Yukiko, it's been, been great to have you here, both in the seminar and uh, in this, this conversation we've been having. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, that was great. This was a great conversation. Thank Thanks. you. Mm-hmm.